Summer recess at the Supreme Court is finally upon us and our 39th episode. Thanks for sticking with us. And today we have a special recap. Welcome to The Term. It's a podcast about the nation's top bench by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington. And joining me now from New York is Law 360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. How are you, Natalie? We made it. We made it. I honestly, I can't even believe it's over. (laughs) It's hard to believe. Uh, Before we wrap up our inaugural season of the term and really kind of dig into what happened, and we'll be having two special guests later this episode to help us with that, we want to give an update on Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The 87-year-old liberal justice was admitted to the hospital this week to receive treatment for a possible infection. That's right. Ginsburg underwent a procedure to clean out a bile duct stent that was placed last fall, according to a statement from the Supreme Court on Tuesday. The justice was evaluated after experiencing chills and fever, but she was discharged Wednesday, kind of ahead of schedule, and is doing well at home, the court said. So so good news there. Well, we hope she, uh, she gets some uh, good rest now that the court is officially uh, done for the term. Although... As you know, there's as, always an all though. There's, there's always oh, a there's always an all though. <laughs> so, are you telling me that we're not quite done with Supreme Court news? Is that what you're saying? No, not quite. Uh, so, even though arguments are over and opinions are done, the court always continues on with some emergency orders. Um, and in a slate of late night five four orders this week, uh, the Supreme Court allowed federal executions to resume after a 17 year hiatus. The orders removed injunctions that had been placed uh, by an appeals court on the planned executions. And this comes just a few weeks after the court declined to take up a challenge to the federal government's new lethal injection protocols, uh, which were restarting basically capital punishment that hadn't happened since, I believe, 2003. The orders on Tuesday and Thursday, like so many cases involving the death penalty, sparked some pretty fierce dissents from the court's uh, liberal minority, raising a lot of issues under the Eighth Amendment's prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment to the protocols here. Uh, But we have a big show ahead of us, so let's just dive right in. Yes. Now we have Law360 Research and Data Editor Jackie Bell on to help us break down the term from a numbers perspective. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us today. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So what can you tell us about this term? So just a warning off the bat, obviously, I think this goes a little bit without saying, but it was a weird term. Uh, It's hard to compare it to other terms. A lot of the cases that, you know, we get obsessed with and are kind of interesting to Supreme Court junkies like us, but maybe not really that interesting to most people, got pushed off to next term. So what that means is that a lot of the little clues and interesting dissents and weird alliances, who joined who, what does that all mean? A lot of that stuff we don't have as much data about this year as we might normally. But, you know, that said, I came with some specific numbers to talk about, you know, some numbers of the day, Sesame Street awesome. style, if that works awesome. for you. <laughs> so what's what's the first number of the day? Okay, first number is the number one. Any guesses about the justice that might refer to? That's got to be Roberts, right? He, he yeah. is the guy this term. <laughs> it's really hard to avoid Justice John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, this term. Uh, so in the 5-4 rulings issued this term, the Chief Justice was on the side of the majority in all but one case. Do you remember what that case was? Ooh, I have a guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, McGirt? Was it McGirt? Yeah, it was the Oklahoma case, right? The tribal sovereignty case at the very end of the term. So... Yeah. Natalie's trivia coming back out. (laughs) (laughs) 
So this was a, a departure kind of from what we saw from him last term. Last term, he was in the minority in eight different 5-4 opinions. So for him only to be in the minority in one, I think, is is a signal of some kind, right? It's definitely a signal. He is, you know, I think most people anecdotally could tell you that he was like, like you said, you almost can't talk about him when you talk about this Supreme Court term because he was authoring decisions, he was casting swing votes. Uh, but I th- thought it was interesting that he was also in the majority in a lot of the, you know, other kind of fractured rulings. I, I think we saw a lot of, you know, seven to two splits, for instance. And I think there you saw Chief Justice Roberts once again kind of building this coalition in the middle of the court. So can you kind of walk through some of the non five to four rulings and how those shook out this term? Well, actually, the the chief justice was in the majority in all but two cases the entire term, which is pretty incredible. I mean, it was the Oklahoma case that we saw. And also, uh, for for most of the term, as we were watching the numbers come down, he was the only case where he was in the minority was in Ramos v. Louisiana, which is the that was the case where the court, the majority ruled that juries had to be unanimous to convict people. So I always thought that was a funny thing for him to be on the other side of <laughs> this term. Um, but uh, there was a lot of cases where he was in the majority that were came down to 7-2 rulings. So the number seven, I think, stood out to us a lot this term. Okay, so um, second number of the day, number seven. <laughs> number seven. Um, 7-2 uh, was sort of a, a vote tally that came up a lot this term. Um, we had 12 cases that were 7-2 this term. And and who were the two usually? Uh, Thomas and Alita were the two a lot. In half of those cases, they were buddies on the minority side, I guess we could say. Um, they were really a pair. Um, there were some immigration cases, a maritime law case, a habeas petition case. But I think the one that probably sticks out to most of us are the pair of Trump financial documents cases. That uh, they you know, Thomas and Alito were on the on the minority side of that. Um, I think that's probably the seven two case that stands out to most people. Would you say, guys? Right. Yeah. Definitely. But there was also on the other ideological side of the court, there were the two liberal dissenters, right? Right. So uh, Ginsburg and Sotomayor were also a, a pair um, in a couple cases. Uh, the contraception coverage case comes to mind. Um, and the ministerial exception case was another one. Um, you know, both both kind of cases where the court examined kind of how far federal laws like employment laws or the Affordable Care Act can reach into religious workplaces. Um, so Sotomayor and, and Ginsburg really appear in those cases. And, and you found something interesting, Jackie, which is that these two, I think, uh, on the left and the two on the right, Ginsburg and Sotomayor on the left, and uh, Thomas and Alito on the right were actually, they dissented kind of the most frequently out of any of the justices on the court, right? This term. So doesn't that kind of suggest there's kind of this kind of central coalition, centrist coalition that, you know, Chief Justice Roberts is kind of orchestrating, you know, from his position in the majority? I think we definitely see that there are justices that just don't dissent as much. And Roberts is one of those. Kagan is one of those. Um you know, for whatever reason, they don't write separately as much. And and they really end end up being kind of in the center of a lot of those big cases. I thought it was really interesting also that Gorsuch, who dissented a whole lot last year, dissented like far fewer times this year. Yeah, it's he surprised us a lot last term, right? Um, He joined with the liberals in a lot of uh, 
case in five, four cases. Um, he dissented a lot more. Um, and this term, I mean, I think he probably equally surprised a number of people, but it came out in the data in a very different way. I remember when he first joined the court, he was joining a lot of the opinions of Thomas in Alito, which led some kind of Democratic lawmakers to call them, you know, the the, the horsemen of the apocalypse or something like that. <laughs> right. And I guess now he, there's kind of a little bit of a divergence there. So I think that that's really interesting to, to look at going forward, whether that'll keep up in the next term. So what else can you kind of break down from us for for some of the numbers this term? Jackie? Sure. Yeah, let's, do a little? let's do a lightning round. Okay. I'm, I'm going to throw some numbers at you. Ready? Okay. Uh, number 283. So this Ooh. is the number of words Justice Thomas averaged per oral argument in the May sitting. I so as you guys know, Justice <laughs> Thomas usually says absolutely nothing at oral arguments, or we There's... might get a joke or a que- or one comment from him in an entire term. Uh, so this teleconference audio so many, format. There have been so many years where it's just literally been zero on the zero. tally that you've like, put together. <laughs> I know. I, I, yeah. like, I, I I mean, the amount that he spoke, I think he spoke in every single uh, yeah. t- pandemic teleconference argument this term, which is like basically as much. I mean, I don't know if this is true. This is just kind of firing off my head, but it sounds like it's like close to as much as he had spoken in the previous, I don't know, decade or more or something. It was unusual behavior from him. And it was fun, I think, for us to actually hear his voice and hear some questions and hear him bring the Lord of the Rings into oral arguments occasionally. <laughs> Big Lord of the Rings, big, big Tolkien fan, that, that yes. Thomas, who knew? Um, yeah, that was. it was also interesting to see kind of how the pandemic beyond Thomas kind of leveled the playing field a little bit. I think uh, we, we did a story um, as part of our Supreme Court, you know, wrap up that you obviously compiled a lot of the data for, um, looking at, you know, just comparing the pre-pandemic numbers of, you know, words per argument to like post-pandemic. And I think Breyer, who's normally, you know, the chattiest, kind of you know, it kind of muzzled him a little bit having to respond to these these questions in, in kind of order of seniority, right? Yeah. And I, I do think the chief, uh, the chief justice, John Roberts, he played a role in really reining people in and keeping people to time in a different way than he usually does. Um, so that that curbed maybe some of the justices who like to ask very long and winding questions. Right. No more Briar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jackie, what's the next number? Okay, number 13. So this is the number of individual women who appeared at oral arguments before the court this term. So obviously this is a venue that is historically dominated by men, but still this was a very low number. Um, so I, I remember being at a pitch meeting with you and we talked about like writing a story about this. And I said, yeah. yeah. And, I, and like just having covered the court, I knew the numbers were going to be bad. Like, I knew there weren't that many women this term, but when you actually gave me the data, it was so much worse than I actually expected because that was actually a 12 year low for the number of women. And even when you account for like the less oral arguments, it's still a much lower percentage. Right. And, you know, last term we saw 26 individual women argue before the Supreme Court, which was more than we'd seen in a very long time. So I think that felt like a positive step and this felt like a very big backward one. Yeah, it it just, uh, they're definitely just speaking with some sources on it. You know, it just seems like the pipeline's broken and they really have to work on it in the private practice side, I think. Um, You know, 
there there was a hot spotlight on the Solicitor General's office and, you know, just how there were fewer women um, in that office this term, which seriously affects the number of women arguing before the court. But um, I also, you know, just get the sense that for any real change to happen, it's going to have to really come from the private practice side. Right. And from clients is what, you know, I think a lot of people have told you and me. Yeah. Right. Choosing, you know, to to maybe not go with the same kind of male, like appellate big wig at the firm and kind of, you know, using some of the talent of, you know, the the, the very, you know, numerous female appellate advocates who who do a great job. I think it's interesting that, you know, the fact that the the if you just even have like a, a, a moderate dip in the number of women in the U.S. Solicitor General's office, it has such a big impact on the total number of women that argue there each term. And it's, it's I do have to say, to though, there is some hope, I think. Like, you know, you see Elizabeth Prelegar, who's like heading uh, appellate practice and Cooley, Nicole Saharsky and Mayor Brown and then Lisa Blatt uh, heading the Williams and Connolly uh, appellate practice. She just killed it this this term. She's on a uh, roll. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she hit, she had like it was a three zero win, I think, something yeah. like that for 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 Williams and Connolly mm-hmm. before the Supreme Court in terms of like the number of oral arguments they won this term. Well, let's keeping with that kind of positive streak. Let's uh, let's let's go with something else that that I think a lot of people will find interesting, and that is Alexander Hamilton. Can you tell us about this next number that oh, you have yes. for us, Jackie? So I brought you one fun number, um, number thirty-seven. So this is the number of times Alexander Hamilton's name came up in opinions, so majority concurrences or dissents in argued cases this term. Uh, you know, like many of us, I think Alexander Hamilton has been on my mind a little bit recently. You know, I've been I watched the recent release of the video version of the Broadway musical. Um, I put my kid b- to bed early that night just so I yeah. could watch it. <laughs> <laughs> His stock has really risen in recent years, that Hamilton. Yeah. I gotta tell you, he's on fire. <laughs> so or as Trump would may- say, he's, maybe- as Trump would say, he's doing great things. <laughs> uh, so maybe also this has been affecting some of the justices. I mean, you know, I think it's not that odd for Hamilton's name to come up a lot. You know, he wrote a lot. He's a founding father. You know, his writings fit into the kind of naturally into a lot of Supreme Court cases. But, you know, last term, just for comparison, we had a lot more opinions and he came up half as much. Uh, 18 times in six cases as opposed to 37 times in 11 cases. Um, It was also, you know, it's not limited to one or two justices. You know, almost all of the justices this term name checked them at one time or another. I love it. Everyone's also, got Hamilton on their mind. When you got Hamilton on your side in a case, I feel like you just gotta use him. You know, it's like a it's like a ultimate trump card. So who knows? I I like to think that maybe it's just a little hint about some of the streaming habits of the justices. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, we know Kagan is on Twitter, and it wouldn't surprise me if she's also a big uh, Lin Manuel Miranda fan. Um, I think Justice Sotomayor also is a fan. I, I'd be interested to see like you know, which members of the court have actually seen the Broadway play and which haven't. I think probably Sotomayor and Kagan are, are a shoe in for that. But, you know, that's just speculation. Awesome. Well, Jackie, this has been super fun. Thank you for helping us break down the term from this data perspective. Uh, thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Take care, guys.
For our next guest, who's going to walk us through some of the big themes of the Supreme Court term this year, uh, we have on NYU constitutional law professor and co-host of the Supreme Court podcast, Strict Scrutiny, Melissa Murray. Welcome, Melissa, to the term. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So just to kind of get started here, I want to just kind of float this idea, you know, the, the big takeaway of the term. We had so many giant blockbuster cases from Title VII to DACA to abortion. In a lot of these cases, progressives managed to kind of come away with some positive wins and victories. Is this maybe a more moderate Supreme Court now than maybe we had been giving it credit for being? Or, or what, do you, what do you think the big takeaway is from the term? I don't think this is a more moderate court, although I can understand why individuals watching the court's opinions come down in late May and June would be inclined to think that. There were some really impressive progressive victories and perhaps unexpected victories. And as you say, the Title VII cases were among them, the rescission of DACA. All of that, I think, were cheered and and, and rightly so by progressives. But I don't think that this means that this is a court that is somehow listing to the left. I do think it means that um, perhaps for the first time since 2005, when he became chief justice, this truly is John Roberts's court. And that, I think, is perhaps the predominant theme of this term, how John Roberts came to take the helm of this court in not only name, but in word and deed. Can you explain kind of some of those votes that Chief Justice Roberts cast in these cases? I mean, obviously, he is a very conservative justice. He is a Bush appointee, and he's led the court on some of its you know biggest conservative rulings in recent years. And yet, he kind of fashioned a lot of these opinions that progressives walked away being pretty happy with. I guess the DACA opinion comes to mind uh, kind of first, but also he joined the majorities in the Title VII and abortion cases. What do you think is driving that phenomenon? Well, to, be, to be clear, I, I, I do not think that progressives should be quick to enlist just Chief Justice Roberts into the resistance just yet. Um, I think a lot of his votes this term can be explained by the arc of the year. So let's just start back in October. The term before, October term 2018, was necessarily, I think, less dynamic. It was a table-setting term for the the court, if you will. Um, They had just come out of a really bruising confirmation battle over Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. I I think they were at great pains to sort of lay low a little bit. Um, There were a lot of calls from outside of the court um, to rethink the format of the court, whether it was in terms of term limits on justices or more radically actually packing the court to include new justices. So this term, October term 2019, started in the shadow of that bruising confirmation battle and the resulting calls for court reform. And and I, I don't think that's something that you can dismiss easily. In addition to just starting the term in the shadow of, you know, reform proposals, you also had the fact that they had laid over a number of really important and politically fraught questions for this term, in part because last term was already um, so shambolic because of the confirmation nightmare. So they held over a lot of cases. Um, and so this term was always going to be a bit of a barn burner. And it was a bit of a barn burner. And they recognized that 
even as it was going into an election year. So you had lots of hot button issues, an election looming in November 2020. And that wasn't even it, because then in January of 2020, the chief justice is called upon in his constitutional role as chief justice of the United States to preside over the impeachment trial of a sitting president. We don't even talk about the impeachment trial anymore. I mean, we, we were so consumed by the pandemic Did that, that we this actually year? I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, like, you would be forgiven if you had forgotten that we went through what is essentially a kind of constitutional crisis point. Um, maybe not a full-fledged constitutional crisis, but certainly something in which the political branches are at war with each other or certain portions of the political branches. And the chief justice is called upon to preside over the whole thing. So we had that in January of 2020. And then in March, we you know get locusts and pestilence and the pandemic <laughs> comes through. So, I mean, it's it's an insane kind of year, I think, for the court. It was already set up to be an especially big year for the court, given the nature of the docket and the looming election. But on top of that, you had the impeachment. On top of that, you had COVID. You had the court take a hiatus in March, trying to figure out what to do going forward. They come back in May with these telephonic arguments where the chief justice not only has to participate, but actually has to play traffic cop with his colleagues in a way that I think um, put him front and center in the proceedings um, in, in a way that I think was very different from the role that he ordinarily plays. So I think all of that um, you have to take into consideration when you think about how this term ended. I can't really explain his decision in the Title Seven case other than to say that that opinion, which was written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, is a very straightforward textualist opinion. And Neil Gorsuch, perhaps more than anyone else on the court, is a proponent of textualism. It doesn't matter what the legislators are thinking or doing at the time they pass a piece of legislation, but what matters is what they put on the page. And you know what they put on the page was because of sex. They prohibited discrimination because of sex. And when you are firing someone because they are gay or because they are not presenting their gender in a way that it's cognizable to you, that is because of sex. And you know, Neil Gorsuch wrote that very straightforward textualist opinion, and it yielded this perhaps unusual, prog- unusually progressive outcome. But it is a very straightforward methodology that he's using and a quite conservative methodology. I mean, it, it's just sort of surprising that in this instance, it yields a, conser- a progressive outcome. But it's an actually a very conservative logic, and I'm not surprised that the chief justice signed on for it. Yeah, that decision, I think, really sparked some debate on the conservative side just about what textualism is. And, you know, because it differed so much from Justice Thomas's textualism take, and there's like this kind of just, you know, uh, conservative debate going on about, you know, whose textualism is right <laughs> on this side. Um, you know, I, I, I think you you raised some interesting, really interesting points about, you know, just Justice Roberts, you know, and, and his role in this. Um, something that I've been taking kind of looking at the data, though, is just, um, A, how few times Justice Gorsuch ended up dissenting from last year, and also how often Justice Kavanaugh, who I think, you know, kind of got overshadowed because Justice Roberts was in the majority so much, but he was almost in the majority almost as much as, as Justice Roberts was. Like, he dissented, I think, just four times versus Justice Roberts's two. What... What do you think it means for for Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch to be playing these roles right now, you know, in terms of the moderation of the court or the so-called moderation of the court? 
Well, so I, I think the moderating influence, if, if you can call it a moderating influence, um, is not necessarily about nodding to the left or moving closer to the center, but rather, and I think this is especially true of the chief justice, perhaps providing a veneer of nonpartisanship. I think especially for Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, who are Trump appointees, it was perhaps incredibly important to look in this term like they were justices of the Supreme Court as opposed to Trump justices. And that perhaps explains some of that, perhaps explains the impetus to write separately, as Justice Kavanaugh did a number of times. And, and, and to be clear, some of those separate writings were honestly gratuitous. I mean, like it wasn't like he was breaking new ground on, and, on some of those. But I do think it was necessary to sort of stake out a position where he was his own man. And I think you can understand that. Um, you know, when I sort of gave the contextual overlay of the term, I mean, it, it was for the point of noting that this term was always going to be fraught for the Supreme Court. It became even more fraught than perhaps they anticipated. And you had the Chief Justice, I think, recognizing that this was a situation where the country is so polarized, so divided, and literally just careening from crisis to crisis. It really needed the Supreme Court to be above the political fray. And I think that's what John Roberts was at great pains to deliver. It also seems to me that the court's kind of discretion, its discretionary docket and its ability to choose which cases it takes up, maybe influences a little bit about how people think about how moderate or not moderate is. Because, I mean, you had cases this year that presented some potential huge conservative victories, like getting rid of a, you know, a, a precedent regarding abortion that was set just a few years ago. Um, and so I wonder if that is maybe what's influencing people to to lead to the conclusion that maybe it's not as conservative a court as it, as it would, but maybe it's just that the cases that they're taking up are so far to one end of the ideological spectrum that it kind of distorts a little bit people's impression of just you know the, the ideological balance on the court, if that makes sense. No, I, I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, there, there were some cases I think arguably they should not have taken or, you know, maybe even more intriguingly, um, once the, the cases had been granted um, and as situ the situation developed, they probably should not have heard. They should have dismissed them. And, you know, one case, for example, like that was the NYSERPA case, the New York State Pistol and Rifle Association versus New York City, where after the court granted cert on it, New York State changed its laws and New York City changed its ordinances around gun control. And the issue was effectively moot, but they still hurled oral argument on it. Uh, we saw Justice Alito being very vigorous in oral argument um, and, and clearly wanting to get to the merits of this Second Amendment case. And, you know, you had five votes, including the Chief Justice, to sort of like, we don't want any part of this. This issue is moot. But, you know, arguably it had been moot for a long time and the court really didn't need to expend its resources to even hear it at that point. Um, but, you know, something like that, I think, when you see the outcome with the chief justice, you know, voting on a procedural ground to not get to the merits of a Second Amendment case, you could be inclined to think that this court is perhaps moving toward a more moderate posture. But arguably, that case probably never should have seen the light of day after everything changed um, in terms of the legislation. So, so that's one. And I think you're exactly right on June Medical Services, the abortion case, uh, you know, there were four votes to grant cert on that case. And 
you know, I've debated this with my colleagues at Strict Scrutiny. I think that it was the four conservatives, um, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, that voted to hear that case. Um, Kate Shaw, my co-host, believes it was the liberals who did not want the Fifth Circuit's decision to stand who voted to hear it. Who knows? Um, but it does seem clear that whatever, whoever made the decision, that case probably should not have been before the court, given that there was a very clear precedent squarely on point interpreting the exact same law that had invalidated the law. And June Medical Services really shouldn't have seen the light of day. It did, obviously, and the chief justice voted to invalidate the law. But it's also worth saying that is not an overwhelming victory for abortion rights. I mean, if you dig into that opinion, Chief Justice Roberts leaves the shell of whole women's health, the earlier decision, but actually strips it of any of the substantive content that would have made it a more rigorous kind of test for states passing meaningless abortion restrictions. So, you know, that sort of held up as an example of how this chief justice in this court is listening to the left. But in fact, I think it is a decision that is table setting for a more conservative future on abortion rights. Yeah, he definitely did seem to walk back some of that earlier decision and just, you know, kind of almost put a roadmap to future future cases. I mean, he said he said as much. He said, I don't I still don't agree with whole women's health. So you can kind of imagine that, you know, where there's a future abortion regulation where there's not like a totally on point precedent that he's not going to have to rely on that. Well, and it's Justice Kavanaugh, who I think surfaces the elephant that's left in the room. And at the end of his his dissenting opinion, excuse me, he says, what we can leave all of this with is not that whole whole women's health stands, but that there's a five justice majority to get rid of the burdens and and benefits balancing tests that whole women's health establish. And that, I think, is the roadmap that the chief justice lays out for future challenges to abortion. You don't need to do what Whole Women's Health did. You Actually, the precedent you should be observing is 1992's Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where all you have to establish if you want the abortion law to be upheld is that it is not a substantial obstacle. And I think that's a far easier standard for states to meet. We were just talking to our uh, top data person here, uh, and, you know, we were kind of running down some of the numbers of the term and the 7-2 splits that were so common. Um, And, you know, one thing that popped up to us was, you know, there's also seems to be a schism of of sorts uh, among the liberal wing, you know, kind of the pairings of Kagan and Breyer versus Sotomayor and Ginsburg. Um, You know, what's kind of your takeaway on on that? those two kind of pairings that seem to pop up more and more this term? So I definitely think that Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor are on the more extreme end of the left wing of the court, um, more consistently anyway. And, And I think you've seen from Justice Sotomayor, a willingness to go it alone and and to really speak out on principle, even if she can't get a colleague to go along with her. And to be clear, I think in some of those situations where she is dissenting alone or writing for herself alone, 
she's right to do so. I mean, I think some of the issues that she's surfacing are terribly important, and it's just unfortunate that she's the only person on the court willing to say it. And, you know, the the perfect example of that is in the DACA case. She's the only one to flag that maybe just as a procedural matter, there is still an equal protection issue lying in the DACA case about whether or not the administration violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment in dismantling DACA in the wake of the president's very extreme statements about undocumented persons and Mexicans and persons of Latino descent. Um, She's the only one to say that, and none of her colleagues goes along with it. And, you know, I, I think it is a lonely place for her, but I also think she's fine being the only person to say that because I think she understands that she wants to say it. She, I think she feels she needs to say it. And I think she feels she's speaking to the American people and that there are certain constituencies within the public who need to hear her recognize that this is still an issue or that this is lurking, even if the rest of the court doesn't see it. So I, I think those dynamics are actually very interesting. I think you also saw Justice Ginsburg doing something of the same thing in the Little Sisters of the Poor oral argument where she just kind of held forth in soliloquy. She was supposed to be questioning the litigants, but it was the question was sort of tacked on at the end, like, right? Um, you know, she's sort of like, I can't believe I'm here again in a hospital bed and we're still fighting over whether the Affordable Care Act gives women contraception like we said it did before and b- again before that. And so I think there's a little bit of that. Um, Kagan and Breyer, I think, are very tactical, um, Kagan especially so. Um, she's probably closer to the chief justice on this than any other member of the court. And I think she tries to be very strategic about where she gives to the other wing of the court, um, where she concedes a little bit. And in order, I think, to sort of put stakes in the ground about certain principles that I think she believes are necessary to achieve progressive ends somewhere in the future. And a terrific example of this, I think, is her choice to join Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito in dissent on Ramos versus Louisiana, Mm -hmm. which was that case about Louisiana's non-unanimous jury verdict rule. Um, In that case, they were taking up this rule that Louisiana and at one time Oregon had that allowed for a conviction with a non-unanimous jury. And The case had actually been heard by the court before in 1972 in a case called Apodaca that had resulted in a split decision from the court with four justices voting to strike down the rule, four justices voting to uphold it, and then Lewis Powell in the middle writing for himself and arguing this sort of wacky theory of selective incorporation of the Sixth Amendment jury right to the states. And That 414-1972 split is actually really interesting because there's another split from the 1970s that's 414 with Lewis Powell writing for himself. And that, of course, is Bakke versus the Regents of the University of California, an affirmative action case. Uh Um, And so I I think Justice Kagan in Ramos, um, I, I don't know her mind, I don't know her heart, but I imagine she's somewhat sympathetic to the position that the court ultimately took. A majority of that court with Justice Gorsuch writing for the majority concluded that um, the non-unanimous jury verdict rule violated the Sixth Amendment. Um, And in doing so, they struck down or sort of jettisoned Apodaca as a precedent. And they did so because they argued that 
the Apodaca court had not fully appreciated the racial roots of that non-unanimous jury verdict rule. Um, it had been conjured up in Louisiana in the Reconstruction period as a means of isolating Black jury members and, and making their votes diluted on the jury. And the court was very attentive to that. Justice Kavanaugh wrote a separate concurrence about it. Justice Sotomayor wrote a separate concurrence about the racial roots of all of this. Justice Thomas joined that decision. Um, And I think Justice Kagan, even though I think in principle she's probably okay with the outcome, she nonetheless joined Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch to uphold the rule on the principle of stare decisis. And I think she was laying down a stake in the ground that stare decisis has to matter, even if you don't agree with the outcome, because she's thinking about Roe, she's thinking about abortion, and she's probably also thinking about that 414-1974 decision in Bakke versus the University of California. And if it's easy enough for the court to jettison Lewis Powell's lone opinion in Apodaca, on this ground because of race, it probably would be easy for them to jettison his decision in Baki on the same grounds going forward. So I think she's playing a much longer game about what the repercussions of that decision are going to be. I remember in the oral arguments in that case, I think it was Alito who made some crack about, oh, you know, last term we were lectured so harshly by the, you know, he didn't say by the liberals, but he kind of alluded to it. Uh, about oh, the he trolled them of, hard. <laughs> yeah, he, trolled he trolled them really hard. And I guess it worked to a certain extent because she did join that that dissent. Um, but but that's interesting. I wonder if you can talk about just kind of kind of I don't know wrapping up some of the things that we've like learned about the themes from this term, where the conservative majority it's still a conservative majority, even if it's not always a working conservative majority. And I wonder if looking forward, you can talk about maybe the areas in which it would be kind of a working majority, and some of the conservatives would continue to move the. The, you know, the, the court's jurisprudence somewhere to the right. Do you, do you see anything, for instance, in, in, in next term that could potentially be big conservative victories down the road? I, I think this is a great question. I mean, you noted the way the liberal wing sometimes fractures with Ginsburg and Sotomayor going their own way and Kagan and Breyer going separately or, or, or being more willing to play with the other side. I think you saw a lot of that, too, from the conservatives with justice. Alito and Justice Thomas kind of forming the core of the conservative wing. And, you know, sometimes Justice Gorsuch joining him, sometimes not. Sometimes Justice Kavanaugh, sometimes not. And the chief justice being sort of in the middle and perhaps wobbly to conservatives. Um, You definitely saw more angry Justice Alito. Um, I think he felt like he lost votes that he should not have lost in, in this term. But I'm, I'm surprised that he's as mad as he is. Um, you know, and, and his opinion in Bostock, his dissent, was perhaps the most mad where he talked about, you know, this is a pirate ship flying under a flag of textualism. <laughs> it was, that was brilliant. Um, but I, I, that quote. I, I mean, it was, it reminded me of Chief Just, or it reminded me of Justice Scalia, this wolf comes as a wolf. Um, but it, it, I, I don't think he really had that much reason to be mad because I think where it really matters, the conservative wing rolls and hangs tight. Um, so the First Amendment cases this term, I think, are a harbinger of things to come. Like, they were incredibly united on limiting the scope of anti-discrimination protections insofar as religious institutions were concerned, both for the contraceptive mandate and, more generally, for the ministerial exception. And so that was a place where I think you saw they did not break ranks at all. They were surprisingly consistent and um, all on side on that question. I think going into the next term, the most obvious place where I think we will see them 
again, all on side and uh, with with very few defections, it's going to be questions around voting. And, and that perhaps should alarm us all because I think next term, we are going to have a lot of voting challenges. I mean, we've already seen some of the issues arising in terms of primaries and how the effects of the pandemic are going to shape electoral politics. And they've been surprisingly united on all of those issues already. And I think we'll see more of that. Um, Some people have noted that the docket for October term 2020 looks lighter than it has in years past. Um, I think that's probably right. I think that is anticipation of possible electoral cases that will arise as emergency issues for the court. I also think it's likely that they expect that there may be some sort of existential election-related question on par with Bush v. Gore. And I think if that does happen, I, I, I predict, and I'd be willing to bet a fair amount on this, that the conservatives will be all of one mind on whatever the answer to that question is. And people will have to rip up their pieces that they wrote about the independence of the uh, conservative. Anyway, I do feel like I do feel like having one of those existential cases uh, would certainly be on par for 2020. (laughs) 2020 Um, can't read the room. I mean, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Melissa, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on and helping us just break down this kind of wild term. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that is going to do it for our first season of the Term Podcast. The Supreme Court is now on summer recess, so no immediate pressing news that we have to cover. But definitely keep an eye out on our feed as any Supreme Court news that does bubble up, we'll probably want to jump back on and tackle that to give you guys just a heads up of what is coming down the pike. But uh, thanks, Natalie. It's been 39 episodes. I think we've had a pretty good run. It's been a been a interesting time to debut a Supreme Court podcast, but a, a, a fun time nonetheless. To say the least, Jimmy, this has been honestly a blast. Um, and I am super excited to, to ramp up for, for next term. Absolutely. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our special guests this week, Jackie Bell and Melissa Murray. It was great to talk to them. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can find all our past episodes uh, this year on there and find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. 